Welcome everyone to New Polities Podcast. We are doing another episode of Good Soil with my friends, Sean and Beth. Sean, Beth. <laughs> we are happy to be back. We are talking about milk. Yes. Which might sound boring, but trust me, milk is the most exciting thing that anyone interested in political theology or farming can talk about. What is milk? Sunlight. How's that? Yeah, that's great. We, we, we think of milk as yesterday's sunlight going through the grass yeah. and you're drinking it for us. We're drinking it the next day and it is the... It's, it's really the, the next day? That's that's oh, yeah. the yeah. process of yeah, right, absolutely. Whatever this metabolism? Yesterday. Oh, in fact, some of it is that faster than that. So if, for wow. example, the cow should browse on a little bit of wild onion, <laughs> right. That will be included in your milk. That is extremely so. It is yesterday sunlight, and it is one of the other things that we love. Is very few things can you harvest when you harvest a cow for meat. It's a one-time harvest. Mm -hmm. For us, milk is a twice-a-day harvest right. every day of the year, and the lifetime of the cow, yeah. starting from her first her first calf, or so the beginning of her first lactation. You're going to, you can potentially harvest every day, even if you're allowing the cow periods of time when she's not lactating. For the rest of her life, you're harvesting like your quotidian sunlight in the form of proteins, fats, and sugar. Now, the, the vast majority, all the life energy on the planet is sunlight. The vast majority of that is being collected on, on land by the thing we call grass, which is a lot of other things than grass, but includes grass. And that's where all the energy to run a planet has to come from. Mm -hmm. It's got to come from, yes, the woods participate in many important ways, but um, for human populations at least, what matters are grasslands. And since that's where solar energy capture happens, everything, all life, has to come back to that. The dairy animal just lets you do it very directly. Mm. You, know, you can actually trace it back very easily. Um, as Sean says, lets you do it in a way that goes on. You know, every yeah. other harvest is you you consume the thing and it's gone. In this case, it goes on being there. And it's a complete food. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can live. You can, on, live on milk. you can live on milk. In fact, the wow. diet that the Help me out with a word. Uh, the medical system north of us near Cleveland that everybody says, oh, and then I went to the... Mayo Clinic? The or? Mayo Clinic. Yeah. Mayo Clinic many years ago <laughs> had um, as sort of its last gas uh, curative in the case of things like tuberculosis, the milk cure. And you were sent out of the city to live on a farm and live on a couple of gallons of milk a day and nothing else wow. for an extended period of time. And they did it because it sometimes worked. Wow. Not infrequently. You know, yeah. The, um, it's a complete food. I don't. I don't personally want to be put on the on the milk there. I, I could. I could do it. Yeah, I love milk. It. I absolutely but love milk. It is a complete food, which is why it's what is made for baby mammals, right? Right, yeah. You can actually take this little tiny mewling puking baby mammal and grow great big mewling puking. No, it's incredible when I, I often like looking at my wife and then watching oh, the yeah. child grow, it's like, it's just incredible that 
more of the child came from you. Like the, the idea of it just, yeah. I mean, the idea of like the child being somehow um, now viable and independent outside of the womb is just so insane. When you see like that, the, the the body of the woman is is completely for the child, and the child has everything it needs. I mean, that's yes. what they tell you. And and God gave us this food, so a land flowing with milk and honey, but He gave us this food that is this perfect food for raising children, for starting children off, and then it continues. And people who say, "Oh no, milk's you know milk's inappropriate," cow, cow milk's yeah. yeah, it's they. I don't know what to say to people like that because our experience, and that's all we can really talk to, sure. science, you know, I really want to talk to my experience. Our experience is it is the best food, not just best tasting, but it's healthy. It's satisfying. Yeah. It is funny that when in, in, in a household where lots of good milk is, is perennially available, it comes to occupy a bigger and bigger role, even just liquid milk as a drink, a bigger and bigger role in the food economy of the household. When refrigerators always full of liquid milk, um, people um, refuel frequently during the day by going to the refrigerator and getting oh, yeah. milk and drinking it. And, I'm, and, and we and sort it's... of relegated it to, that's a kid's drink. Uh -huh. um, it isn't, not, not, not when it is the product of and and it's transformed into so many other things and it's the basis of so much food you know it's in bread it's well, in the other piece of the milk picture which is worth visiting because um, the best argument you can make for milk is the most complete one right well in the complete argument um there's that sunlight shining on plant material and being collected and you know it takes 56 photons to split x many CO2s and X many H2Os and link them together to make cellulose. That all happens if it happens in grasslands and those grasslands are undisturbed by grazing animals. In, in, in um, most environments, that those grasslands will move either toward desert or toward forest. Mm -hmm. And we can all clap our hands and say forest is, is ecologically friendly, which is maybe true, but it is not human food friendly. Mm -hmm. Forest in general is not a good environment to go to look for your calories. Um, grass needs to be grazed, needs right. to be cut off in some way. And if it is grazed properly, it gets better. Mm -hmm. You build soil or the mo most important part of the soil profile, which is humus actively and almost fast enough to watch it happen, certainly fast enough to watch it happen over a period of weeks and months. You're actually making the substrate for your living systems better by living properly. Yeah. And the, the and we see this around stupid because you keep teaching people to do the same thing. And so it's like, oh, I see that you're have movable fences and are moving a cow here and there. You must have talked to the Doherty's sort of thing. <laughs> but you, you said it's your, for your whole system because you guys use milk, not just for human consumption, right? But you, oh, yeah. it kind of, it, it feeds the animals on the yeah. farm. It, it feeds the garden. It's, it's just, how do you feed the garden with milk? I will let my wife talk about that. 
Well, directly. I mean, the direct answer would be... Water with milk. So with, with dilute milk, mm. for example, uh, if you, yeah, if you want, if you want to give a boost to some plants that you've started, um, or plants that you have planted, you know what a hugel mound is. Piles of, piles of logs with compost. Oh, yeah, yeah, you plant in them. If you're starting in a situation like that, where there may be a, a low available fertility, you would water with a wow. form of compound milk. Um, simply even in in the in the big picture of dairying, there's um, a cow and vessels that we bring to the cow when we fill them with milk, and then we take them away and we do stuff with the milk. And what do we do with the vessels afterward? We're constantly rinsing them. There was a time when wash meant on a farm the water that came out of the dairy and mm. it was used to stop pigs it was used to pour over your favorite rose bush so it wouldn't get black spot because as it happens a weak solution of milk is as powerful as any anti-plant and anti-fungal available on well, the market who knew that i did not know that um and it's just uh it's going to be ever present right mm -hmm. with dilutions of milk in some way and yeah. those are going to go back to the on, on a farm that can't previous to our age of flush toilets on a mm -hmm. farm where um, effluents were going to stay there, yeah. right? That was one of the effluents and it did indeed contribute to the, to the fertility of the dad. Yeah. But, yeah, milk will feed everything on a farm because milk is that renewable everyday thing that takes daily sunlight Yep. and makes it available yeah. for the farm. It, it was a big jump for us when we realized, oh, okay, so if, if the crop on a farm is the stuff that's already growing, then the actual harvesting of the crop has to happen through a thing that can take what's growing, that's default ground cover, and turn it into forms that make it available to species we like to have around as things like tomatoes and pigs, right? Yeah. And milk, milk does that. Yeah. Um, it's not just oh, that's one way to tweak the creation to get an effect you want. Grazing animals are the way that human cultures make food avail available to themselves in the vast majority of situations. Okay, sure, we can, um, we can look to the Inuit and say, okay, they're not, they're not primarily de dealing with grazing animals, but most human cultures go back to some form of um, cooperation with grazing animals yeah. and sooner or later that cooperation tends to become husbandry not just hunting yeah. we're getting ready to go speak at, at homesteaders of america this is in uh, october in front royal and one of the workshops we're going to have a whole day workshop on building the input free farmstead mm. and this is something that we are finding more and more people very interested in because they go to the they get a few animals and now i'm going to the feed store all the time in order to to keep these animals alive and they're kind of basing their whole farming on what the commercial farm does on the miniature Sure. And we have abandoned that uh, through finding that we can feed our animals from the farm. And so our cows go out and they eat this grass and that's all free. So there's no, we don't have to go to the feed store for that. Mm -hmm. And then we take this milk and it is the heart of, it's not the only thing that we're feeding to our other animals, but it is the, it's the thing 
that makes the input free farm yeah work. It's, no it's very beautiful it does seem to be analogous to the fruit of the tree the, yeah. the milk of the of the cow uh, and really the milk of the animal does seem to be like if if in the pregnancy of the animal the the new individual is sort of the exterior fruit like well there's the perfection it's walking away the interior fruit is the perfection of the of the female animal which is that now she is producing life like in a quite literally fruit she is edible <laughs> right yeah she has become edible i mean there's something a little bit savage about it but if you've seen children at the breast you know they kind of are often yeah, little savages because small mammals and, right yeah. like yeah. their mothers are food their yeah. mothers are food and becoming food is if you think about the analogy of bearing fruit within the life of grace like to bear fruit is not just this idle metaphor of like it's some pretty thing on the tree the point is it's an edible thing on the tree that you want when when christ says by their fruits you shall know them you have this whole paradigm for judging human life itself that says okay how do we know that the human being is perfect well it's where he becomes edible and not edible in the sort of gross sense of um cannibalism but where does he feed others where is his habitual life such that the other person is nourished by him don't judge a man by what he gives himself how he maintains his homeostasis you know how, <laughs> judge him by the fruits that's right and it seems like within i'm thinking of the biblical literature that just milk is such a yeah. you know they think about and, and, yeah. and clever image. right and clever man cannot recreate honey and it cannot recreate milk yeah and if you think about honey and milk as the signs of the promised land they are also um abundant oh my gosh. goods that that we receive akin to grace mm -hmm. like they're good they're good little images of grace right because the uh, so i'm keeping bees and as with most, you're keeping bees now mm -hmm. oh, yeah good. i just have one one uh horizontal or vertical hive vertical i've i've heard the <laughs> well, uh, yes we're gonna work we're gonna work you. on you it's not propaganda no this is really the way it's to go but, but what i'm but finding with these right. as with almost all <laughs> almost all agricultural sort of forays that that um i've had the time to to begin is how little work is involved not how much work but how little work and i understand of course there's problem solving but but and in the some sense, the more we can involve, the more we mess it up. In some ways, yeah. Like you have to tend a nature that pre-exists you, right? That's right. Ratzinger talks about the liturgy um, as uh, the rite, especially R-I-T-E, -I as being um, that which that which I do not control, but which I receive. Nice. And so it's the relationship of man to right is a and gift. the reason why I didn't like Adam living in that. Well, that's what he's saying. He's looking at, I mean, especially when he was writing, this is in the spirit of the liturgy, he's looking at people that are critiquing the idea of right because it's somehow stifling the creativity of the person in his worship of God. And he's making a really great argument where he's not denying the goodness of creativity at all in the worship of God. He's just saying that what makes man socially creative is, as opposed to this sort of obsession over individual creativity that we have is to produce something that is a response to God's gift and that he, he keeps on saying unspontaneity is the essence of liturgy or the essence of right in some ways because something is going on without us and that puts us in the mode of the receiver. We don't control it. 
it's there, it's happening. The cow is making its milk. The bee is making its honey. And when we receive these things, it's as as gift. I mean, it feels like gift, even if we're working on it, because... Oh, very much. It's like collecting eggs, you know, is the one that yeah, yeah. Most, most quickly connect with. It's like Easter egg hunting. But you're right, yeah. you come to it every time mm -hmm. as, um, as though it's dropping from heaven. Yeah, right. yeah. No, I do think there's something to... I mean, I don't want to get too far into some of this maybe dubious biblical exegesis, but when you think about the manna from yeah. heaven, obviously incredible, miraculous, but also a reminder of what food is for a people who had gotten used to receiving food at the end of a production line in Egypt. What what are um, the Israelites complaining about? What they're complaining about the vegetables that they um, could get within their slavery in Egypt, right? Which was presumably, you know, um, related to a certain rationing. Like they're they're able to to receive that um, as slaves, and now they're free going away from these vegetables which and towards these abundant ideas milk and honey things that are gonna simply be simply be received um, and it just seems like God is reminding them that all food at the end of the day is like manna I mean it all comes from heaven mm -hmm. um, and you needed it in this spectacular fashion because you'd forgotten it because you saw it as being at the end of a supply chain because like you were part of an empire that so manna really enacted for us that food is gift yeah i mean most you think it's God's yeah gift. yeah well okay so where does that put us presently oh my gosh all people don't like food that isn't already processed and packaged we're afraid to pick something off the tree or pick something off the ground yeah and so we do not this has been our I mean, we've had to form our thoughts, especially in teaching, around an increasing analysis of modern food ways as um, people in the United States of America, in the, in the, in the first world today, um, know if they know it at all, only abstractly and at a great deal of distance, that food is, a, is an agricultural product. Yeah. Well, and, and raw milk is dangerous. Right. Now, now and, and we always do say that the way that milk is being um, handled now by the big companies, it is, it would be dangerous as raw milk. But for us, you, we're taking it from the cow, we're yeah. going straight to stainless steel, can you explain, straight to glass. Can you explain the process of industrial milk collection? Because I don't know that people would know. And why why is it that the resulting product is one you have to boil and sterilize in order to make it fit for human consumption? Why is that? Well, so that it's the nature of grazing ruminants, the things that we milk, right? To live outside on grass, eat, defecate, walk around, um, sleep out there on grasslands and um, it's under those conditions that they naturally produce milk and if we want it we take a container out and squeeze the milk into it and then go use it in various ways and then and, and that roughly speaking really was how milk was produced on farms all around and, the world and why a farm always had a milk cow right. even when they were 
traveling on the Oregon Trail or something like that. They would keep their cow with them because it was their source of the best food. And so that really is a, an image, an accurate image of how, say, my grandfather, right, in the, in the middle of the last century was producing milk for home consumption, a certain amount for, for sale. Um, not how we grew up. As, right, I did not grow up that way, but that is, that's how my grandfather was producing milk. Mm -hmm. as, um, as a whole lot of causes drove small farmers and small farms out of the American picture. And, and um, farm methods were industrialized, farms got bigger to pay for the industri industrial equipment. Um, bigger farms always means fewer farms because of course we're not making more land. So if my farm gets bigger, it's because my neighbors stop farming. And as we began concentrating um, all of these activities, but we'll choose cows, in one place, very quickly, you get to see the limitations of animal concentration when you're looking at dairy cows because um, a cow's natural uh, way of living is to walk out and eat. Mm -hmm. And if it's a dairy cow, it walks back and gives milk, you know, walks back to the barn and gets milk, walks out and eats, walks back and gets milk. Well, a cow's legs are only so long and he's only, she's only gonna walk just so far. So within walking distance of a dairy, there's only grass, cow walking distance, mm -hmm, cow mm -hmm. ambulatory distance. Cow miles. <laughs> There's only just so large of an area yeah. that um, can hold cows and yeah. take them back to a central dairy and feed them to Right, right. And that, you know, we could apply a number, and I'll give you a rough number, say 25 to 50 cows can live in one place and, and still have room around them to forage if they're managed very carefully fill their bellies and milk come back and get, get milk twice a day. And um, we exceeded that number. And in order to exceed that number, concentrate those animals under fewer owners and in yeah. fewer places, we began feeding them grains, which were being subsidized by the government, so it made them artificially cheap. So that was an easy way to um, have an easy to move, easy to store, small to feed out, um, concentrated food to give to these animals. Um, the other thing that we, of course, had exceeded as, is the um, number of cows that any given proprietor can hand milk. So hand, machine milking was invented 130 years ago, but farmers didn't like it because it was clearly not that great for the cow and it didn't produce a good uh, uh, product. So it didn't really catch on until we began exceeding the number of cows in one place right. that a man and his family could readily milk twice right. a day. So why is why is raw milk bad for you? Well, okay, the cows aren't living, I mean, raw commercially produced milk bad for you. The cows aren't living in normal conditions. They are living in conditions where pathogens aren't um, purified. You know, we don't purify the environment with sunlight and air the way we would outside. Um, the, them together. the food they're taking in too is not feeding, the normal food. Feeding them food that um, the effect of, of grains on the gut of a cow are that uh, her gut biota don't achieve as low a pH as mm. they do if she's eating grass. And at that higher pH, pathogens like E. coli or 157H7, which is the, the nasty one or one of the nasty ones, 
can live in the gut of a cow, um, and since she defecates from the same end of her body that she produces milk, there sometimes can be some crossover. But the biggest reason that I would say, beyond even the possibility the, the, that grain feeding cows makes them more likely to carry pathogens, the biggest reason that commercially produced milk is going to be unsafe to consume in its raw form is that when we use uh, machines to milk cows, not only do we set them up for a bunch of, of other physiological problems, but we take milk and we run it through um, silicon cups that are called inflations, through long miles of plastic pipeline, which by the way, since they're in use pretty constantly, day in, day out for months and months and months, and they're miles long, can you picture to yourself disassembling this machine and reaming it out with, say, a bottle brush every time it's used? Well, you might be able to picture it, but it would take an army of people and it doesn't happen. That's not what we do. We use this machine to move milk very fast through pipelines into big bulk tanks, pump it into pump into tank trucks, haul it away. All of these conditions are putting milk that that most perfect food that's rather like a petri dish and that everything wants to eat it, every pathogen wants to jump in and have a big family. We're running it through pipelines and tanks that we can't clean. Mm -hmm. Even if we had the time, we just don't have, have the, the mechanical means of cleaning them. So and, and they would try and clean them. They would try and run acid washes through, super hot water through, but you're getting a film. Anybody who's dealt with milk knows yeah. that a film develops and you can't clean did, that. Did you ever see those silly straws when you were a kid? They mm -hmm. come in your bottle with cereal. Mm -hmm. And if you ever used them to drink milk, you only did yeah. it twice. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> like, you were aware that they were nasty. And right, right. Well, that picture, that's your point. No, I get that. I get that. That is not, by the way, an, an entire dairy farmer. Or silly straws. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> or silly straws. Just use them for water. And, and so they came up with a solution. Which is to pasteurize it. Right. Yeah. So raw. No, but is that the, is that the order of events? I, I'm I'm eager on this. It, it's did which came first, right? The the, the chicken. Well, sure. Is the pasteurization <laughs> enabled industrial farming or industrial milking, or did industrial milking necessitate pasteurization, or is it like a cross fertilizing? Got introduced for milk. Um, during the, the big urbanization boom in this country. This is why I keep her along. She knows all of this. Awesome. And I don't have to rem memorize it. This is fascinating history, too. Mm. Like I was a total loser in history in school because it didn't, it wasn't real to me. This is real to me. When did we begin pasteurizing milk? Well, thank, thank, thanks to Louis Pasteur, we have the process. We say, oh, we heated them, we kill microbes. Um, in the and I'm great at forgetting exactly what decade, but think late 1800s and to early 1900s, as um, our cities were getting larger, they were becoming manufacturing centers uh, um, of the Industrial Revolution in the way that you know Manchester in England was just a, a faint shadow of. Um, so we had a whole lot of people squeezed into a small area, a lot of those manufacturing um, uh, productions made stuff, right? So say you are running a brewery in Milwaukee, 
one of the side effects of that brewery is you have a whole lot of grain mash that needs to go somewhere all the time. And an easy way to, to sort of get a secondary income out of that and get rid of the stuff is to bring some cows into the city, park them, feed them brewer's mash, milk them, mm-hmm. and market the milk. It was a good way to get rid of brewer's mash. It was also a good way to answer the question, how, if you make a Milwaukee, do you provide milk for a Milwaukee? Sure. Because that issue of how far cows will walk yeah. to graze and come back and be milked comes into play. And also the issue of how far I can truck milk and have it remain sure. sweet, as in unfermented, comes into play. And you just can't concentrate. You know, there's a limit how many human beings you can concentrate in one place pre-refrigeration and still supply them with milk. Um, so you get these city dairies and the food is wrong, the conditions are unhealthy. You've got a bunch of people crammed into a small city or a big city, but small space. Um, and you're producing this highly um, fragile, if that's the right, right use of that word, uh, extremely nutritious product that can easily be contaminated. And children were getting sick. And somebody somewhere said, what if we establish, so pasteurization becomes a known thing and people say uh, there are microbes and they actually study the milk, stain it for, stain it with something that would turn a little um, tuberculin bacilli red and you could say, oh, it's tuberculin milk, how do you fix that? You pasteurize the milk. So they established stations in big cities like New York where women could take their milk hmm. and get it pasteurized before they fed it to the, their children. What I've just described is an emergency method for managing um, basically refugee conditions. Totally. Yeah. And and that was the only reason you pasteurized milk. Um, actually, even for shipping milk prior to refrigeration, pasteurization wasn't the go-to. Some weird stuff was like there was one point where um, formaldehyde was being added to milk before shipped to cities to keep it sweet, as in mm-hmm. unfermented for a little bit longer. But pasteurization was not a norm. Um, and in fact, that's very evident if you go back and do your reading because it's always referred to by the fact that it's pasteurized, whereas farm milk, country milk, is a different, it's exempt. Nobody would dream of pasteurizing it. And in fact, Pasteur is supposed to have said when he knew that they were pasteur. I don't know if it's true, but I like it. Pasteurizing milk, he said, look what they've done to my lovely milk. Um, in French, of course. Whatever he um, So then why did we start pasteurizing milk uh, later on? Yeah. Pasteurizing all milk. All milk, yeah. It had to do with the growth of cities, the yeah. fact that we were shipping milk from further and further out. Yeah. Now, I would be interested in, I haven't, I haven't done this research, but it'd be nice to know who began the practice of acquiring pasteurization. Yeah. Because actually, raw milk sales have been allowed all over the country for many, many years and went out, it, the, the right to market raw milk only disappeared as the dairies who were grandfathered in as raw milk dairies, as dairies that didn't have to pasteurize as they went out of business. Sure. So if the stuff was unsafe, why would you have a grandfather clause? Right, if right. It was really, if, it, if pasteurization was necessary, why would you say, well, not you, because you've been doing it a long time. You go ahead and peddle 
raw milk, even though it's toxic. No, um, for whatever reason, we felt the necessity of, we corporately, our government felt the necessity of eliminating the possibility that milk would be marketed in any way pasteurized. Yeah. But pasteurization followed upon um, large cities, large dairies, and long distance shipping. And for us and for our friends who are doing this, it is not necessary. Right. Yeah, no, this is this is this is the crucial thing. I mean, what you're saying is an industrial process necessitates an industrial solution. That's right. And if you're not using an industrial process, that's it's, right. It's not necessary. Right. It seems to be a certain law of nature that where greed exceeds, I don't mean greed in some like malicious finger uh, wiggling way, <laughs> but just in the sense of that transition moment from a desire for goods to a desire for profits, where profits are yeah. money. Um, it seems to be this law that it turns nature to poison. Um, because like you said, there's a, there's a limit to um, how much you can amass when what you're amassing is the gift of God, right? Now, if you wanna amass something that's totally made by man, like I don't know, Bitcoin or something, you have, you have some uh, expanded affinity for amassment, but amassment generally, you think nature abhors a vacuum, you should see what it does with an amassment to test it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and so the that whole principle, I think, I mean, is very. It's in the Bible, which is just because the Bible is in some way the book of nature. Um, you think about the story of Abraham and Lot. Um, uh, they're farming, mm -hmm. um, and they run into this point in which they're both expanding in power and wealth they're kind of princes of of the the earth and god is blessing them abundantly and and it's very beautiful but they do run into this problem that their shepherds are starting to fight because they're butting into each other in some way it's a little vague exactly what's happening I can pick, um I can pick oh it yes you're right i'm watering my yeah. shoes <laughs> at that spring out of the way you know right or that's where i was in the pasture my dad right exactly exactly and and the story that follows is very beautiful because the it's not a presumption of scarcity where it's like okay now that we have competition for limited resources we need to bring in technology to be able to continue this sort of amassment process without conflict um abraham tells lot to go choose the land that he'd like to go to and of course this is presuming an abundance of land which there really was but it also is fascinating because Abraham was in no position to give Lot the first choice. So Lot was um, younger. Lot was not um, the, I mean, they call him a, Abraham, the prince of the land, but Lot was in a, a lower position. Abraham could have taken one mm -hmm. name he wanted, but he uh, gives Lot. God called Abram. Well, sure. There's a lot of, there's a lot of authority and power there, but it's precisely the story of, of Judaism and then Christianity that, um, you know the the strength is perfected in weakness and you see this right here abraham's strength is to say to lot choose the land mm -hmm. lot goes and chooses the best portion he goes and chooses the land like unto eden it says whereas abraham goes the other way and it's interesting because lot then of course becomes enslaved to sodom but um but what i'm trying to get at is there's a point of growth which necessitates distribution right whenever we try to amass we run into this problem. Well, manna um, as well. If they took more than they 
needed, Man, yeah. it well, went bad. Well, that's why I say it's a remedial miracle. It's like you forgot about what, because that, that's true of all food. Yes. If I if I don't share, if I don't give, then I get a result, and it's called rot. Mm -hmm. Right. Because because nature is too abundant for man to pretend he's an idiot. Right. Now, refrigeration and freezing has eliminated some of that again, because yes. what, what when my grandfather, who was a butcher, well, yeah. oh, well, that's true, too. We're burning but, other things. But, the, for, for but as a butcher, he would go out and he would help butcher an animal, and then everybody took some of it. You, you shared with your neighbors because you couldn't hold yep. that much meat. Yep. It needed to be dispersed again, as mm -hmm. you're suggesting. Yeah, and dispersion is a, you know, it's a political phenomenon. It's like, it's like the question of, it's very perennial. It's like the decision to amass versus distribute is really the decision between the city of man and the city of God. Yes. When the city of God reaches any height of perfection, it moves into a mode of bearing fruit and actually distributing that strength into more people. It empowers others. It beautifies more places. It, it gives itself up. Mm -hmm. It's self-sacrificial by nature because it's following nature. It's saying like, well, at the very peak of perfection, it's not like the cow then further amasses for itself. No, it feeds others. And, and the same is true of the land and the same is true of people and our virtues, especially like we do not become courageous in the way that say the stoics would have talked about becoming courageous where you further and further immunize yourself from the world right which become you become essentially able to stand over and against as as virtuous you become virtuous for the sake of love so like now i am i have become the perfect servant because i i have quite literally the skills of living the habits of life in order to serve others and that's that moment of distribution City of Man is the opposite. Like um, we're Augustine just characterizes it as a love of self, and what that means is whenever we have whatever we have is for us. So we amass and we amass, and then those amassments are destroyed, and that destruction is characterized as the wrath of God. I'm not trying to say that it's not real or personal that God punishes amassments and breaks up strongholds, but I'm saying that he does it precisely in, with, through, and because mm -hmm. it's natural. Because of the nature. He, he created this order and amassments will be destroyed. That's right. Um, and right, it's kind of yeah. like if you keep sawing on the branch you're sitting on, nature <laughs> yeah. drop you to the ground. God doesn't have to step in right. and make it happen. Well, and, and, and in we, some way already did, yeah, yeah. We are very concerned with the farming systems that are going on now that at some point i mean as fewer and fewer farmers are farming more and more land nothing's on a human scale anymore it's mm -hmm. on these gigantic scales mm -hmm. this system's gonna collapse mm -hmm. yeah no, 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 um, that, take much. That, that, that the citizens of this nation believe that they will go on eating because um, the industrial food system continues to put things on the shelves is the height of blindness and can um, you can only excuse that mistake by reporting that we are all 
in total ignorance of how our food comes to be. But um, we're presently dependent upon some uh, clever fixes that have been plastered upon clever fixes, which mm -hmm. have been plastered on clever fixes, all the way back to not a situation that needed to be fixed, but exactly the amassment you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And when we decided that we were going to farm on a scale that, that uh, let us amass, yeah. um, and farm in ways, invent things like refrigeration that let us amass, yeah. we had to continue, we, had, we, we, we knocked a hole in the boat, yeah. and every patch we put over that hole in the boat has made more holes in the boat. Sure. And we just keep putting patches on because those patches have enriched a small but very powerful segment of the country for decades. Yep, yep, yep. But our, our, the actual natural systems, grasslands, soil that is capable of producing plants that bear fruit, those natural systems have been so undermined that we're completely dependent on those fixes and they the speed with which we can go on generating um they're not fixes they're simply distractions from the problem right that all that that have um sort of uh jumps not short sort of not not jump started but somehow revved right engines that do indeed keep putting something edible on the shelf mm -hmm. But there is no uh, natural replenishment that will keep that going yeah. indefinitely. But, 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 but the exciting thing is that you can pull out of the system mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and you can take a small piece of land and say, I'm going to farm the way grandpa and great grandpa farmed and find that it works. That you, in fact, are creating an abundance of food that also the land improves. Mm -hmm. So it's a system that feeds this is itself. Not and this is definitely not the 1970s homestead movement. This is not like, um, uh, you know, peace, love, and brotherhood, and let's go out, out in the country and live our, our isolated lifestyle and communing with nature. This is not that at all. Mm -hmm. This is. Um, this is the basis. Uh, hum Humanity is here because we did figure out for a long time some fairly decent ways of patterns. Patterns. That's right. Um, of managing very limited landscapes prior to only a very few, historically very few decades ago. Right here is all there was. Wherever yeah. you were, you weren't going anywhere else. Either you couldn't get away, or your neighbor. To the in the next county wasn't going to let you get away. You had to take care of where you were, and we had patterns that we could observe in nature and then um, observe our own effects on that let us uh, go on producing food in the same place yeah. for centuries. That's yeah. called Europe. That's called China. That's called any place where we had long-term human occupation. And two of the keys that we have discovered are milk, the ruminant on grass, and then careful management of the grass mm -hmm. and those two things were have been the basis of what how we farm that allows us to mm -hmm. grow i mean we could easily grow 100 percent of what we eat but we at some point but that's right it's unnecessary and it's also a little bit um, anti-social sure. so. so 
milk is illegal. And that's, <laughs> it's fascinating. Yeah, raw I mean, milk. Raw milk. I know, but there's something about saying that where it's like, oh yes, yes. It just seems that there's a different product that does different things. Yeah, and we call that milk. Um, and obviously, it's from milk, but in the same way that if I take your milk and I leave it and let it start to ferment and become a kefir, mm -hmm. I would say, oh, this is kefir, right? Because something's been done to it intentionally in order to to make it a certain way. Mm -hmm. It seems like in a similar sense, if you take milk from the cow and then run it through legally enforced pasteurization for sale, to some extent, you're creating a different product that you have as much justification of saying, well, this isn't milk in the same way you would say kefir isn't milk. <laughs> but the what, what I love about your milk is that properly managed, and it doesn't take too much work, it, has no waste to it for, even for human beings i don't just mean the kind of no waste attitude we talked about with compost where it's like you have something that is waste to your immediate transformation of the world into okay. continued life yeah. but it's a right. gift to something below or right. lower in the hierarchy what's fascinating about milk is precisely as the fruit of creation in some way it gives and gives and gives um, so milk becomes kefir becomes yogurt can become cheese and what is in pasteurized milk just a process of it becoming undrinkable in um, raw milk is a process of it becoming more valuable That's right. That's right. and so you have two lessons as it were that when you when you mandate an industrial process um, you get a sterile product not simply in terms of its you know the fact that there's nothing living in it mm -hmm. but sterile in terms of it's now contraceptive almost from taking on new life it's um, of, of, of further fruition and, and you said briefly that all of our you know the, the term I, is is somewhat hip like all of our manufacturing of scarcity Mm -hmm. where we take things that are obviously as long as we're virtuous going to provide and provide abundantly get rid of that virtuous part and then start to create systems where they will no longer provide abundantly unless someone is enriched mm -hmm. that's the manufacture of scarcity so in doing that with um in doing that with milk it it seems like we have struck a um I don't know, maybe esoteric or at least poetical <laughs> blow at really one of the dominant metaphors for the goodness of life and the goodness of existence uh, or in the abundance of life, the abundance of existence, that that thing that, you know, sunlight seems to tend towards um, and that never really stops giving until it's well and truly gone becomes a sterile object that we extrinsically pay various industries to turn into the precise com dairy commodities that we would otherwise get with just the milk itself so you think about yogurt i mean yogurt is wild because we take the milk we then sterilize the milk and then we get the things that we took out of the milk from somewhere else presumably an industrial operation i'm sure and we stick them in the milk mm -hmm. along with because it doesn't achieve the result as well we also stick guar gum and <laughs> carrigan i don't know if i'm even saying that right um so it makes it thick so it produces the thickness that we would expect from fer Badly, fermentation yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> um 
Yeah, it feels it feels it feels real until you start eating the label and then you're. <laughs> I'll bring you some. I'll bring you some unproduced yogurt. And yeah, not veggie yogurt. Not veggie yogurt. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I've been I've been eating yogurt for a while. Um, legally. But, but but man, but man is so clever. Yes, that he can. You know, I, I was horrified when we were. I think we were in Texas, where we were at Dallas, and they were having this huge um, conference, and they were injecting taste into the smells, so that uh, this meat was just dead, horrible stuff. I remember, it was a trade show that he went yeah. to, and it, it was for. Um, restauranters and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. producers and it had to do with how do we use artificial smell and flavor to enhance the experience that the consumer is going to have so, so, this food product. So you can take really lousy food yeah. really bad right and then you inject this stuff into it and it's really yummy yeah totally but that's what it is. I mean, it's totally see how that creates, you know, the injection creates more markets that are capitalizable. So instead of, instead of it simplifying, it's like, well, here's a way that's to right. make money here, money there, that's money right. there. And that's why I think that jobs, the, the jobs, jobs. corporations would be way behind things like manufactured meat, because then we can control it. You, we yeah. are independent. We can raise our own cattle. We can eat our own Where, food. Wherever you you see, can't tell us. I mean, you can try and tell us what to do, but we can. Yeah, we can give you a lot of pushback where if everything's out there manufactured and I'm just at the mercy of yeah. what's coming from Kroger's, I'm, I'm yeah, in trouble. And, and this is sort of how capitalism works. You know, Marx talked about this where on a geographical level where he said um what what capitalism has to do is find new markets um and he was speaking about like going overseas because you cannot have the process of industrial mass production um and wage labor um you you quite literally dry up mm. it, like and this is just obvious like if you're pursuing ever greater profits then you need ever greater markets right you can't that's right. just how it goes right and he was quite right and that is in fact what happened the movement of of um, the industrial capitalist economy to become essentially what we now call like the global economy is is obvious and, and needs no critique here but what's equally obvious is that we have opened up internally new markets right and and that is to say places in which people were peaceful and uh, provided for had to be rendered scarce in order to create a new market for a commodity mm -hmm. um or create a new fear right right and and ivan illustrates very convincingly about simply the 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 profit that comes from creating uh managerial and bureaucratic bodies dedicated to our health dedicated to our um our freedoms that is itself the product of making something scarce that wasn't Right, so we, we produce the necessity for um, not simply other physical inputs, but also for other law, for for new forms of human life, and ultimately salaried human life. A rational uh, <laughs> analysis of the last two hundred fifty years would be fascinating, wouldn't it? To say, yeah. How, how have we elected 
I mean, what really freaks me out, as much as it freaks me out to hear anything like about the additions to, to food and, this, and to milk and such, what blows my mind is that human life, a human life can be dedicated to put a person within a bureaucracy dedicated to keeping raw milk illegal, however that looks, that a, a whole human life and its potentiality can be produced on the basis of a scarcity that need not be. Like you can, you can make the necessity of someone to live as a milk cop, essentially. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> um, that and that's sadder right. almost. <laughs> yeah, we create the, we create new roles for the, the manufacturing of scarcity. And it's then- It's deeply distressing because once we've done it, there it is, right? And so it is sure. real. And then it becomes difficult to, um, take human human beings right who live in a, in a universe that they experience is real and um speaking as a you know one of those human beings who grew up in the universe that i experienced is real on some level is it very difficult to successfully propose that 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 thing that you're experiencing is real is not necessary that they're living in the cave yeah, but even in the cave, things are right there chained at first. Yeah. So things are necessary on the basis of real power structures. It's just that those power structures didn't have to happen. They're right. not well, forgotten. Well, one of the things that we, you know, when the agricultural system breaks down, which again, you know, we, we think it's going to happen, it's going to be hard. It's going to be very hard. It I won't do. It won't affect us very much, but it is yeah. going to have a huge. And we're already seeing that fertilizers from Ukraine. They're not able to get them. That's this. That's our system right now. Yeah. Something's going to happen. Some yeah. food is not going to be available, yeah. or something yeah. is going to happen, and that is going to be very painful to huge cities yeah. that need that. I don't know well, what's going like to The problem with milk in particular is that we have no distribution of property in this country. Like you have land. Yes. And so you're capable. But that's right. even you are are grazing your cattle on other yes, people's land. Yes, that's right. The vast majority of people, like the story of, of America, and I guess I would imagine Europe at a slower pace has just been the destruction of, of private property over time. And by private property, I don't mean what like the libertarians mean. I just mean that people do not own skills and they do not own land and they do not have power and capacity because those have been amassed in the hands of very few people. It's just very obvious. And so a collapse in the agricultural system will necessitate a revolution in terms of the distribution of property. Or at least the distribution of the use of the uh, Yeah, right. What, what I mean, and I mean this quite simply, like if we really had that, then, um, I think people would ha either have to take enough land to be able to go back to the kind of life mm -hmm. that you're talking about, or they will die. Right. That, that will be, right. or more likely they will uh, arrange certain relationships that will be similar to feudalism mm -hmm. where, um, you know, land ownership remains somewhat large, much smaller than it is now. I mean, now it's like right. just but, insane. But that's another way of saying people have taken it back. They've simply taken it back as a group instead of taking it Correct. Back. And, 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 yeah. and the problem then becomes also that this land has now been destroyed. Yes. That <clears throat> now we've got to take this land. Now, th this is something that we're, when we go to these conferences and speak, people come and talk to us and they say, how do we take 
row crop land yeah. that has been fertilized and all this kind of stuff. How do we turn that back into? And we are seeing a lot of experimentation from people that are starting to do this. It takes time, but it's possible. I mean, I think we're starting it is to see. Before it becomes impossible, there is a point um, beyond which. Uh, when it's covered with concrete. Yeah. Right. Well, I was picturing, you know, the Arabian Peninsula, for example, and thinking, okay, so there may be a point beyond which it is not humanly possible to reclaim a piece of land. But fortunately, the, most of the United States, at least, does not presently fall under that heading. Although some of it can be very difficult. We just did a, we just did some advising at. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Georgia, Atlanta? No, no, the college. Oh, uh, uh, Hiram. Uh, Hiram College, north of here, about two hours. And um, there's a 15 acre plot of land that uh, they're proposing to use in regenerative ag. 14 years ago, that land was under the plow. It was part of the cornfield next to the, to the college. It had been rented out. And um, when that rental agreement was it wanted it out. The land was simply let rest, right, for 14 years. It is appalling. It's going to, it, it is reclaimable. And it's going to happen faster than we deserve that it should happen. If they, if they practice it. If they bring animals but in. You would recognize immediately what you were seeing, that um, a dense uh, community of Lots and lots of weeds, broadleaves, um, coming out of a slick clay subsoil with no organic matter on the top, except for, you know, that little bit of moss that, you know, desperately spreads itself over mm. spaces like that. It's going to be difficult. Yeah. But it can be done. But it, it can't be done while we're relying on it for food. Not we sure. would starve in the amount of time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. that's right. Yeah. There that's has right. to be that's right. a transition period. Or that's right. Or like that's right. Die. I mean, I just think of like the Deuteronomical blessings and curses that are yeah. pro proposed by God for yeah. obeying um, or disobeying the that's law. Right. And he doesn't he doesn't shrink. I mean, there is a point of of violence against us. nature yeah. that the only thing left to eat is your own child. And that's the that's the end point of Deuteronomy, that the only thing you have left to eat is each other. Um, and of course, the blessing which precedes it is abundance. Is, mm -hmm. um, but it is a abundance that's contingent upon our participation in it. It's that's not right. the abundance that we imagine of like luxury of just mm -hmm. like things dropping into our mouth. It's like right. become saints and you'll have abundance, right. become sinners. The, the, other thing that, the other thing that's really kind of exciting about what we're doing right now is as our family get smaller as our children are dispersing. Um, we are moving more and more off of the convent property and we're moving more and more home, Yeah, which is very small. We yeah. have very few acreage of, of pasture acreage yeah. at home. 24 acres total, but about four of those are pasture. And what we are finding, which I'm excited about, is we're able to do, to maintain our abundance on this little yeah. tiny property. Yeah. So we're taking the methods that we moved up there with fewer animals. We're still having it a 
plenty for us and our gardens. So the garden, the big gardens that we had up at the convent, we're moving those home. And yeah, we are having great success. It is Yeah. Totally. Oh, I know. And, and so when people think, well, I've got to have a quarter section, I've got to have 160 acres, we say, no, 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 no. 20 acres for a small family is is right. even that right, right. Yeah. half, half I, I, pasture half half woodland well managed and you have a gun whatever obviously it depends on your climate your that's right but the potential is there right in in most climates in yeah. most soils the potential is there for a small acres to become an extremely abundant productive yeah. um you know sort of home base for for a large family, a large extended family. Yeah. And the more land you own, it starts to own you, mm -hmm. rather than you being able to do something with it. You're spending enough time just trying to manage this, right. because land demands I mean, management. I feel that way about my yard. Yeah, I don't think yeah. I'm even that, yard. that's right, <laughs> that's right. I mean, it'd be fascinating for you. I mean, we would love to watch this. How much abundance can you get from what you have, and then that little piece of property across the road, yeah. which is not, you do not own, no. but the owner has said to you, do what you want with it as yeah. long as you keep it mowed. Yeah. And I think that's, th these are the experiments that I'm very excited about. Yeah. That what can we do with that? Well, and depending yeah. on, the, on the food waste that you're following, I mean, uh, King, who wrote Farmers of 40 Centuries, can't remember his initials, E.F. is Schumacher, I think there's an F in the King, but anyway, Mr. King, who wrote Farmers of 40, cent uh, of 40 Centuries, um, was documenting Asian agrarianism, which meant almost everybody in the country. Yep. And um, it was something like an average of two and a half acres per household where all of the needs, and this is including things like fiber and fuel, of these families are being met because they're not going to be met by anybody else. There's not a philanthropist next door sure. going to fill in for you. Are being met for about two and a half acres. Wow. And this is multi-generational families. Now, what that presumes is a level of intimate care that is um, unceasing. Yeah. That recognizes that. Uh, to weigh something is to kill it, is to ca cast it out of the realm of the living and make it unavailable to anybody. Yeah. And that's a one-way street. Yeah, right? yeah. And, and since resources are finite, that's a good way to commit suicide. Sure. To do anything else. Um, so think about that for a minute. Two and a half acres would typically support some, you know, uh, parents, grandparents, children, some poultry, a pig or two, it might be supporting a larger animal, but that would be typically for draft more than for milk or meat, mm -hmm. as, just as a motive force. And um, and then all the plants and that plants that were needed for to go on generation after generation after generation for four thousand years, go on supporting um, the people living there. Wow. Amazing. That is incredible. Yeah. No, I, and I wonder. I wonder if it's not even smaller than that. Like when you, when you care for a place, it's what I have this experience every time when I look at my yard in the in the winter. I have to say, 
Well, in the winter, I look at it and I think, oh, it's so small. How do I do anything with it? And then as things are growing and I'm in the garden, it's like the world itself becomes bigger because it's, it's expanding in its meaning and what it's giving me. But I, I feel lost in it. I'm like, this is huge. This is huge. Right. And I think that experience is always, you know, the unit, the, the earth is, is abundant. And so it's just a question of how careful we're willing to be. I'm sure you could do it, do it with one acre. Um, but it'd have to be the right kind of life. Right, right, right. Well, I want to end with talking a little more about milk or rather maybe just like doing a kind of a speed round on, on <laughs> milk because we did say we were talking about milk. But the problem with milk is that of course, as the, the fruit of right habit, it, um, is about everything. Mm -hmm. It's very hard to talk about agriculture without talking about everything. Um, but what do you think about people who maybe that's uncharitable, not about what people, not what do you think about the people, but what do you think about their thought? <laughs> what do you think about the notion that to have milk as a sort of interruption of the calf and the mother, a kind of, um, I mean, what business do we have? There's so, a certain violence, and I'm thinking of like the vegans in some ways, but there's a certain violence that's presumed that we're kind of there, well, I mean, taking the cow away from its milk. For our dairy cows, and our dairy cows are not super big producers, and they're all grass. They're all grass, and they're right. a smaller breed that's not, we're not managing for much. The abundance of milk that's coming from that cow, cow a calf certainly a young calf could not yeah. consume it all yeah so we in a certain sense we have to be there yeah. or that cow's going to have mastitis and these are not even huge producers now as that calf grows yes it would come to a point where it could take all of it but the cow is going to move to grass mm -hmm. and so yeah. The calf is going to sorry. The calf is going to move yeah. to grass, and needs to move to grass mm -hmm. because it's a problem for that mother if the calf. And we've seen problems like that where the calf, at a, you know a year or something like that, keeps going after the mother and trying to nurse. That's a that's. It's a problem for her. Yeah. You can. Um, I mean, what makes a dairy cow a dairy cow? isn't just that we squeeze her and get milk out sure. of her. Sure. Because that's every cow. But, but she is metabolically inclined when she takes in calories to make milk with them as opposed to make muscle with them. Yeah. That's how we've differentiated between the breeds we call beef and the breeds we call dairy. Is the breeds we call beef are the ones that naturally are inclined to put calories on their backs. The ones we call dairy are the ones that are naturally inclined to put calories in their udders. And those, since those are the ones we're talking about milking, we're not interrupting any sure, sure. any um, nursing relationship over here. We'll we'll look at the dairy animals. Um, certainly, in the commercial world, dairy cows are taken from their mothers often minutes after their birth um, and fed inferior foods in inferior environments um, with inferior care to what their mother would provide them. And I, for one, think it's pretty appalling. And, and, and we don't do that. Any part of it. Yeah. yeah. When uh, it is perfectly possible, and it is what we do, to cat out cows. Uh, that means mama is going through normal life, reaches the point of parturition, drops a calf, nurses it. Um, she'll si simultaneously be. Uh, added to the milking string the, cow, the cows were milking and she will for a period of time be milked and 
and nurse her calf simultaneously. At some point, um, if the, what the calf is taking exceeds, uh, it, it's so much that we're not getting what we need for the house, we can put the calf on a 12 hour on 12 hour off relationship with mom. Um, and if you want to know whether the calves object, as soon as these calves <laughs> figure out that they have a private bedroom and shelter at night, um, they go to it. They're, they do not need to be present to mom and nursing all the time mm -hmm. to be happy. At we'll get one night or two nights when there's a little bit of bawling because they are used to it. But after that, that's right. After that, they are very happy yeah, to go in. Mom already there and mom leans against the outside of the barn and says, yeah, I'm here. And, you know. Yeah. Once they've decided, okay, this is okay. So uh, what Rousseau said about mankind, which is that the children wander off into the woods after they're nursed in the original state of nature, is more true about cows. It is, <laughs> right. And, uh, and, and people, people who, whose complaint about milking cows and milking rumors is that it's abusive of the animals, uh, haven't watched the animals get milked. Mm -hmm. um, dairy calf. We can take a, a dairy heifer. She's two years old, two and a half years old. She has not been handled by people. She's run in the herd that we move. She's had, she is accustomed to and comfortable with human proximity because we're the bringer of good things. We open gates and let her onto new grass every day. She gets bred, dogs a calf. Immediately her life is going to change because we are going to interact with her physically. We. It, uh, the training period <laughs> where you bring a heifer into the barn and begin milking her. This is a calf that has never, a cow that has never it's been milked. Not even been handled. No, right? no. We, we always hope that we're going to bring this, when we know that it's getting ready to calf, we think, okay, we're going to start bringing this animal into. The barn with the other. She'll get used to it and that happens. Yeah. <laughs> busy with other things. That's right. So this heifer is unfamiliar even with the barn. How long? does it take and what kind of force does it require to train her well in a week you can kind of assume she's going to go willingly into that stanchion how many times is she going to kick you when you're learning when she's when you are teaching her to be milked no hmm. now there are bad, there are there are exceptions we've had in 25 years we have had uh one or two mostly one just bad-tempered animals that did kick but do cows object to being trained to stand at a stanchion while you knock them into a bucket they do not mm -hmm. they, they have a harder time going into the stanchion well and not putting having, their having their head in there while their calf is where they can't get to it right sure. so what you're actually seeing is maternal anxiety quickly alleviated because you finish knocking our new turner loose and yeah. she finds her calf the training period for, for that to become easy might be anywhere from two days to a couple of weeks. But right. this is not an act of violence. This is not something the animal finds deeply distressing. Yeah. This is a brief training period. You vegans with dogs spend more time exercising force and coercion on the dog to train the dog than we have to spend convincing a cow to let us milk her. I mean, she wants the pressure off. That's right. She wants the massage. She she yeah. appreciates the physical contact just as Pucci appreciates being brushed. And the calf is not taking as much milk as needs to be taken off this cow.
Mm-hmm. Which is why, I mean, I've talked with vegans about this, and the more consistent ones argue that there should be a universal destruction of the species of dairy cow. No, I mean, not the species, because there's bovines, obviously, but the consistent ones say that their very existence is something that needs to be milked. And so they, they advocate an ontological destruction of... And, not- and one of the things that we would say to that is, where is the fertility going to come from for... Um, improving the land or, or maintaining the land. I just love the arguments of vegans. No, there's... For, for, for an animal. Oh, I know, it's like an atom bomb. <laughs> I'd, like to, right, I'd like to find the vegan who is producing all of his or her own food. Locally. In this producing. Right. Him or herself locally in an animal-free well, I think, system. Yeah. I am not saying that it couldn't exist, and I'm, I'm, I'm asking, I'm waving a red flag for the isolated vegan who thinks mm-hmm. he or she is doing that to send me a nasty note saying mm-hmm. I'm doing it. Mm-hmm. As a, and that note would be intended as a demonstration that it's a viable option. Yeah. And, and there are. And I would say all year round and, as and well, which true. we are able to do right. with our you system. Not all year round, but. I want you to be to be enacting the same system 10 years from now. I want to note that this is a long-term viable system. The best vegan and, and vegetarian farmers and gardeners I know or know of are still not using an animal-free system because one way or another, the fertility is becoming available, soil fertility is sure. becoming available in part through animal activity. Yeah, yeah. Um, the protest that that animal husbandry is somehow an abuse of animals can only be made by people whose food is coming to them out of, out of, out of boxes. I mean, when you see what we do for our cows, that we move them, we provide them with water. They, yeah, that's right. They do. No, they don't do work in the sense they they are allowing us to take the milk from them. But we move them to a new paddock that is fresh grass. We're selecting the best paddocks. We're looking around for them. We're getting the briars out of them so that. And, and one of the one of the proofs is that if um, if for some reason there's a. Uh, uh, time lapse after they're milked. Oh yeah. Put into their new fresh, lush, rich paddock. They stand by the barn and tell us like, what the heck? <laughs> Where's the smorgasbord? Get down here and see to us. You can eat later. Right. They have a, a sense of entitlement that's really dear. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Take care of them. Well, it has always seemed that the vegan position, and it it's more that I just see it as a certain heightened symbol of a general attitude, which is that we don't belong here. I yes, I think so too. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And what, I'm, what I'm horrified is the, te- the, the um, industrial end. You can only yeah. argue for your veganism in, in a, a, a complete vacuum of actual information about where that food's coming mm-hmm, from. Mm-hmm. You cannot defend food production in an animal-free system. <laughs> Do you think that milk, or really the milk cow, teaches us about the feminine or the maternal, or is it just sort of? That was so funny bad? that you just said that to. Who did? Who were you talking to? You said 
uh, my cow is one of the women on the farm. Mm. She is another, is she is, she is my, she is one of my women friends. Mm. Right, they're, yeah. they're, they're, that is the relationship with you. I don't remember who you said that. You just said that to somebody. I think it was um, down in Kentucky. That might have been, might have been. Because um, in some ways it's like I, when you I talked about... Well, it just strikes me when you talked about the kind of milk as being able to provide everything. Um, there's a certain just... Of course it's an image of the maternal. It is from mothers. And so it, when you're actually milking a cow to essentially receive, the, at least in the body, humanity's fruit, like that which nourishes. Um, there's a relationship to, to the maternal understood as whatever is shared between human mothers and animal mothers, um, where the maternal is, is kind of obviously displayed as um, a, a world or a cause or a totality where you're completely taking care of others and in this in in that role of milk you also have precisely the, the vices typical of femininity as well as the virtues right which is the capacity for totalization total control over um like the child so I think about like, I'm trying to balance the milk as the sign of abundance. And then in St. Paul, when he's talking to the churches, he says, um, we fed you on spiritual milk because you were not ready for meat. And there's this, there's this dichotomy of like, um, milk as the maternal sign of complete provision, but then also the sense that humanity is endangered by well, I, I can I can talk Provision, to the like to, to the positive. Out of that. Yeah, I don't know that I can I can talk to the negative as much as I can talk to the positive, which is that when as we were developing our farm and developing our practices, mm -hmm. and for a very long time we did not have good practices mm -hmm. or or not complete practices, mm -hmm. and as we saw that the milk cow and the pasture and the soil, if we were taking care of all these, as we've already discussed, we have this abundance of food that spills beyond milk to the whole farm we have this incredible and abundance it gets deeper in the trip. right and it's getting better every time that sense of security that sense of well of course god made it that way yeah, yeah, yeah. that that's how it would work right uh, overdid all of those other things that i think especially in our day and age distrusts or expects that the system's going to break down. Yeah. That um, that it's only going to work if man comes in and, yeah, and is yeah. clever and makes it work and stuff catch? like that. Yeah. Where's the catch? Absolutely. And is that to, kind of what you're asking me? Yeah. I mean, but I but I'm not sure where the I, again. So so that's that's the 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 positive side. That sense of wow, this really works. Mm -hmm. So when we were told, look, you just can't farm anymore. That's not true. Yeah, you can farm now, but you, but not necessarily turning your farm into a profit-making machine. Yeah, that may not work. It must be connected though to. I mean, it just doesn't seem. I hate arguments that start like this. It can't be an accident that when. Yes. Maybe it can. I don't know, but I'll do it anyways. Yeah. It cannot be an accident that, in the same time period and culture in which we made milk illegal, um, and then mandated pasteurization 
which is set, like in its most symbolic meaning is just like the imprimatur of man that says, don't worry, this stuff comes from us. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, right. Which is that kind of illusory exclusion of the original creation, I, you know? I love, you, I love you putting it that way because milk is also that thing which requires no processing whatsoever. Right. It doesn't even require to be chewed. Yeah. Honey right. as well. Yeah. It, it, you don't even have to chew it. An apple, at least, you have to take it down and chew it. So this is like mm -hmm. the perfect nourishment. Mm -hmm. And that we should reach out and say, you know, like fiat. You know, yeah, yeah, transform yeah. Transform it so that. Um, it yeah, not not even like it would be bettered by this process. Not even that in some circumstances this is necessary, which obviously you could see. But like a totalizing, if it doesn't come from us, then you are at war with the state. Yeah, at some level it ends in jail. I mean, not like I'm not yeah. saying I'm not it saying does. Like the Amish immediately. Yeah. But like if you do not, you are working against. The feds do close in on yeah. farms that are selling raw milk and yeah. people up to jail. It is happening. Yeah, so. So that that fact that that at the same instance that that's going on, you have the turn to formula as opposed to breastfeeding yeah. in human life, yes. and then maybe even more generally, where, where the same principles could be applied. It's not that there's like never a place for formula. It's not that you can't see it as a viable response to a lack, but there was, and gratefully I think this time is well and dead. But there there was a time when um, breast milk itself was was frowned upon yeah it's like that's right the, the imprimatur of man was was necessary once again despite evidence of the fact that we're still here after thousands of years that happening alongside a just general um i don't know what to call it besides a i don't know war on the feminine seems kind of um grandiose i suppose but th there's there's the um if in the image of milk, we sort of learn something about the maternal nature, which is um, that the body goes on without you and provides for others um, without without consultation, mm -hmm. without interruption. That the body nourishes and grows. I mean, there's something incredible that women find themselves already pregnant. This has always blown my mind. It's like yeah. you're not yeah. finding that you're pregnant in the way that you would, you know, you, find you have a cough. Or you yeah. are suddenly realizing that your body is already mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. nourishing mm -hmm. someone. Um, and then all the anxiety and, and difficulty is how do I deal with the fact that I am already abundant, already giving, already doing yeah. something? And, and that seems to be like a, a fundamental maternal experience that I don't know that men have in the same way though i think we the reason we don't have it in some ways is precisely to be able to learn it better because that's what our bodies ought to be doing is always already nourishing others but anyways all of which is to say <laughs> that it seems like this fear of the given as opposed to the manufactured um and i don't want to make a sort of like distinction there as if artifice is bad but i mean i mean the given and not the given cooperated with um but the given as a source of fear in our culture it's like oh we didn't have anything to do with this it must be bad mm -hmm. um that this all has developed in our sort of late empires in the last hundred years as a simultaneous fear of the female body fear of milk fear of um fear of uh, live 
living things like live cultures, fermentations, things we can't see that go on without us, things that don't. And some of it is very comic, right? Like when we're producing the exact microbes we need to inject into the thing that we killed all the microbes from in order to get the product. It's like, what are we doing here? We are making the natural process divided into its component parts so that we can have control over each one to produce the same result and ultimately an inferior result. But, but the fear of the feminine seems to characterize all of this because the feminine seems to me to just so intimately teach us about a life that goes on without us, a thing that we a goodness and an abundance that we stumble upon and are surprised by and well and and i think it's you know it's abundance i mean the female is abundant it could give us so many kids that's bad right sure we've got to control right, right. that sure. abundance yeah because that abundance will somehow overwhelm us or well it overwhelms it overwhelms the woman precisely as compared to the man right so it overwhelms career it overwhelms that which is possible without the difficulties of abundance because sometimes you talk we talk about abundance as if it's just like a, a rosy thing that's true no, uh, there's, there's actually well, nothing more frightening than a oh an no. abundance of eight children that's yeah. right or, an abundance or, of eight children look at could be overwhelming say, oh no all the tomatoes are red <laughs> yes that's right that's right um and so that inspires action and creativity and artifice huh? no. well I, and with milk yeah. i mean we have a lot of milk in our refrigerator yeah, right yeah, now yeah. Yeah. with with the earlier question which we didn't really hash out maybe because it was beyond us of you know like where's the catch I was thinking that, that the catch is when you try to keep it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. That, that's what I was trying right. to indicate by like, you know, the prototypical um, vicious mother is the is the smothering mother, right? Mm -hmm. the, the one for whom that relationship, uh, and I don't even think it's like, in, like only, f I, I guess I mean symbolic and prototypical and almost a Jungian sense of like, I, I suppose men could participate in different ways, but the idea that that which provides everything can turn that relationship towards itself and then and, and fear and negate um growth and and life that goes away from that total provision mm -hmm. right the smothering the smothering mother um seems to be the prototypical or dragon mother i think is sometimes mm -hmm. is sometimes the term um and so it seems like in in the Bible, at least, you have this vision of milk as having this twofold thing. On the one hand, it is abundant, it is provision, it is a sign of grace. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, it is precisely that which you must, as Christians, move beyond to arrive at meat. Like you cannot, um, you cannot exist in a world that isn't constantly distributing and differentiating you and pulling you further along. Mm -hmm outside of a, a totally so closed. So we're naturally provided with a place of almost perfect comfort so that we can leave it. Right, yeah, no, that's beautiful. That's beautiful, and I think that is, I mean. I think it's a dirty trick. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know, it stinks. Right. Yeah, right. But there's also a point. As a mother, I know that, that it would have been, was, you know, like my desperate desire to prevent my children being made to suffer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And thank God it wasn't one of my options because I would certainly have, have, have been so emotionally attached to the thought of, uh, you know, 
thrusting some obstacle between them mm -hmm. and those cosmos shaking moments that you have as a child through small events as well as large the moment where you perceive death mm -hmm. um, you know and I would, I would, as a, as a mother, have been incapable, as incapable of stopping myself, you know, projecting myself between the child and sure. that experience, as I would have been incapable of not grabbing them if I saw them, sure. you know, falling into, into a, a place of danger. So thank goodness that dirty trick has played on. Well, I mean, <laughs> there's a lot of, I mean, I'm trying to remember who actually says it, but the, the male is often it's like the sign of differentiation. And so you have this like paradox that like when children are born, um, women nourish them, and then men typically pretend to kill them. And it's very funny. Oh, that's funny. That's funny. Yeah, if you want to make a baby laugh, just pretend to drop it and then catch it and yeah. laugh because the most hilarious thing in the world to a baby is not being provided for that's the that's right. the first joke is right. is and that's such a great testament to humanity like well we're the kind of creatures that laugh at the thought that we're not loved that's what it's like to be a baby and then you learn other jokes on top of that okay. and it seems like the um there's something about agricultural work we call it husbandry and there seems to be something something poetically related at least and, and actually related which is that we tend to um interrupt maternal completion for the sake of new things and so we, we play a sort of prototypically patriarchal role in reference to nature so the the mother is the source of the kind of fruit of the species in both the actual new individual and in the milk and then what we do is we differentiate that so we actually with animals oh, you you just described it right you make the separation which we see in adult men with their children vis-a-vis -vis the mother that there's a when i take the child you're kind of predisposed to to shake it up a little i, don't know, I shouldn't say shake it goodness me right. <laughs> <laughs> but it is you know who, who, who uh, makes the the exciting things happen yeah i mean i think i think we teach each other both right like like I, I i always loved that stage when the next child came because it moved yeah. that child yeah. out of her lap and into my lap right which was delightful right that's right yeah. that's right and then we teach each other yeah edith, edith stein i think said and, and i have some problems with the phrase if i interpret but but in the whole is great like if there are differences between the sexes it is because it belongs to us to teach each other our the fullness of humanity so you distribute difference so as to learn um the fullness of what it's like and it does seem to me like the male and the female are busy teaching each other what the other needs right so like generally it seems like women need to look at things like death and look at things like the end of things and the splitting of things into newness and then men need to learn care and um, gentleness, not as just like an imitation of like softness, but in the sense of like, um, I will I will be reverent towards a system that exceeds my control. I will approach this with fear and trembling to not interrupt what God has put in place. That's this mutual teaching that seems to go between mm -hmm. men and women. Generally speaking, of course, people get mad because it doesn't relate to a particular situation right, but right, that's right. how it is we're teaching each other you know 
Anyways, all of which to say is it does seem like the, uh, our relationship to milk does seem to mirror our relationship to the feminine and culture more generally, and maybe that's no surprise. I think that, um, there was a time when people read the songs and of the land flowing with milk and honey and did not see it nearly as, um, figuratively as we see it now. And that you're right, that, uh, and, and this for us will be a discovery, you know, we're on the journey of figuring out what is the proper relationship between individual human beings, you know, like a set of individuals and the and place they mm -hmm. um, But I think you're right that we will come to see that I mean, it is the only way, it's the only way I can't think of another, if, if Soylent Green is, is like the uh, industrial attempt to do the same thing, it's the only way that um, we can reach into our living environment and draw from it daily um, um, like rich and available nourishment um, and then all other things flow out of that management and we could go on for a long time on this topic um, and I'm not even going to begin to crack that one of them but I think I like that you've started my mind thinking oh this is a much bigger picture probably than I begin to grasp. I see this little, you know, I've got it by the tail and there's a lot mm -hmm, more to mm -hmm. the significance of milk and... Yeah, I mean, you think about how it's also eschatologically fulfilled that in the, in the New Jerusalem is, is a mother. She's a free woman and we nurse from her abundant breasts. We suck fully of the milk of her comfort. Um, and so you have this in the Christian life, it begins with milk and it ends with milk, but the, the difference is crucial, right? Like that in the beginning, it's the milk of our own inadequacies, right? Because we are not fit for the fullness of, of the mysteries. Mm -hmm. So we receive the condescension of God to give us what we are capable of, but precisely because it's milk, it, we grow. Mm -hmm. So we become more and more capable until we're capable of meat, as St. Paul talks about spiritual meat. And then in the eschaton, we're back to the pure reception of grace. We're, we're nursing infants again. Only now it's through the way of knowledge. It's through the way of, of human maturity. It's, it's growth into saying, at the beginning, it was all grace and I didn't know it. And then I lived. And now at the end, it's it all grace, grace and I know it. Well, I know it. And I think that's such a, um, I think milk, having the kind of beginning and end of the scriptures seems to, Seems I, to make I knew we were on to something. I but. <laughs> All right. I'll do it again. Okay, well, thanks everyone for listening to us talk about milk. I understand that for many of you, you may not be in a situation where you can go get a cow. I get that. But do support your local hustler of raw milk because they're there. They're trying. Human nature has never been suppressible uh, in and the main help them out uh, buy raw milk and we'll see you next time <laughs> <laughs>